the intersection of technology and consumers is more prevalent today than it has ever been before. And while many of us continue to utilize the benefits of predictive technology, we're still slightly uncomfortable with how it seeps into our lives. This growing dichotomy often leaves us asking one important question. Can I trust this technology? Luckily, Michael Biltz, the managing director at Accenture Labs, is here to answer that question and ease some of our concerns. On this episode of IT Visionaries, he discusses Accenture's Technology Vision 2020 report, the brewing technology clash between consumer and trust, and how the robot renaissance is upon us. Enjoy this conversation. IT Visionaries is created by the team at mission.org and brought to you by the Salesforce Customer 360 platform, the number one cloud platform for digital transformation of every experience. Build connected experience, empower every employee, and deliver continuous innovation with the customer at the center of everything you do. Learn more at salesforce.com platform. This podcast is created by the team at mission.org. Welcome to IT Visionaries. I'm Ian Faison, host of IT Visionaries. We have special guest, Michael, what's going on? Hey, hi Ian, how are you? I am doing well. Um, excited to talk to you about everything that is going on at Accenture Technology Labs today and uh, get into your background. So let's get into it. How did you first get started in technology? Yeah, actually, I fell into it. You know, the the job with Accenture was one of those I was planning on going to medical school, um, was looking to save up money before I did it. And I fell into tech and programming and I kind of never looked back. So flash forward to today, what is the Accenture Technology Labs for folks that don't know? And, and what's the scope of your role? Yeah, so Accenture's Technology Labs, we're in a really interesting position because we're a consulting company, not a traditional tech company. And so we've got 500,000 employees over, I think, just about every country in the world and just about you know every industry. And we've got this really interesting place in the marketplace that our job is to help companies add tech to whatever they're trying to do. And it means we've got this broad view, you know, everything from artificial intelligence to robotics to virtual reality, you know, and more. And what our labs is really set up is to make sure that we stay ahead of the curve, is that we're not always necessarily inventing, you know, the newest VR headset or something like that, but rather we're looking to try to figure out how all this technology that's produced by startups and academia and all of these big companies actually gets translated and used by real businesses to help, you know, make your supply chain more efficient, you know, to figure out, you know, how to use augmented reality in order to, you know, wire wind turbines better. But all of those things of the practicality of how does this stuff get used, we're looking ahead you know, five plus years, you know, to understand how those things are going to change and how these things really should be implemented, you know, by, you know, every big company across the world. Well, I can tell you that, you know, a lot of our listeners and guests, CIOs and CTOs are constantly trying to stay up to date on the latest tech trends to figure out how their companies are going to be shaped by technology, whether they're a technology company or not. Um, you know, from an overarching viewpoint in this, like, how do you go about keeping up with everything that's going on? How do you stay um, up to date with everything? Yeah, I mean, the reality is, is that it's a full time job. I mean, 
And I think it's one of the interesting things is that for many years, since I've been with Accenture for you know, 22, 23 years now, and I think the most common question I used to get in the early in my career is, you know, why on earth does a consulting company you know, have a lab? And I think it's exactly for that reason that you said, is that there's so much changing from a tech perspective, you know, from an IT perspective in the marketplace, is that you really need people whose full-time job is dedicated to being at conferences, to talking to academia and academics, you know, to having your know, researchers on staff, you know, looking into, you know, what's real and what's not and how it's and how it's really pushed out there. And so we do it, you know, primarily by, you know, I'm gonna say throwing lots of people time and effort into making sure that we're connected into everything that's going on. You know, and I think that we doubly and doubly in a unique position in the marketplace, you know, that says that because we work with, oh, I want to say the last count was something like 98% of the global 2000 companies, is that the fact that we actually have our hands in relationships with all these big companies, you know, in every industry in most countries in the world gives us a relatively unique way for us to leverage not just, you know, conferences and our network and people out there, but actually to lever, leverage all of our experts within these fields, you know, in order to kind of funnel it down to us to try to distill that really hard question of the, it's not just what's happening, it's what are the important things that I can focus on and what are the things that I need to be prepared for right now? When you publish a really weighty report every year, technology, well, in this year, Technology Vision 2020. Tell me a little bit about the report, and then we'll get into some uh, some things that, that interested you or surprised you particularly. Yeah, I mean, the, the report really, it, it started out as a look for ourselves in order to try to guide what our research was done, you know, within our technology labs. And I think particularly, you know, as we started to get into the mid 2000s, what we realized is that every company was realistically starting to become a technology company. And the amount of tech that, you know, whether you're an insurance company or a car manufacturer, you know, or Procter and Gamble, is that suddenly everybody was expected to be tech savvy and using all of these new tools. And so it eventually morphed from a internal thing to us really publishing, I'm going to say the skinny down version of what's actually changing in technology. But I think more importantly to that is the business layer on top of that that says, why do we actually care about that? And so we do an enormous amount of effort in uh, interviews. Um, we have an advisory board from, you know, a, a bunch of different firms, you know, external to Accenture. You know, we talk to academia, you know, and then we do a giant survey, you know, for all for the purpose of trying to distill down, you know, what's changing, you know, and how that's going to impact, you know, most businesses. You know, and what it turns into is I think this year was a 150-page report, which sounds like a lot, you know, but we make a real big effort to, you know, tell lots of stories, give lots of examples, and, you know, make it as practical as we can. Well, we'll link it up in the show notes and, and highly recommend if, if our listeners haven't checked it out that they do that. But let's, uh, in the sake of time, let's TLDR this thing uh, for, for our listeners now. What were some of those tech trends that you saw that were particularly interesting? Yeah, I, mean, I think, honestly, the, the most interesting one that we really saw this year, and we'll, we'll call it a tech trend, even though you know it, it's tech adjacent, 
is that there's been a real big shift over the last 18 months in how companies are viewing both technology and how they're viewing their role in our economies and our societies. To nobody's surprise is that usually when we talk to, you know, C-level executives, you know, they're laser focus, you know, is on revenue, their position in the marketplace, you know, their profits, you know, and their shareholders. And I think what's been really interesting is that, you know, over the last 18 months, as we've seen tech become so pervasive, you know, in our companies and also in our lives, I mean, think about the Uber, think about, you know, as we're sitting here, you know, in COVID, you know, using all of our telepresence, you know, every day, is that we're starting to see companies realize that the more that we touch on our consumers' lives, the more that we embed ourselves into the everyday you know, pieces of our family, is that it's not just the value that technology is providing that we care about anymore. It's also the values that these things are pushing forward. I think the big shift is not that that hasn't always been important, but I think what's happening now is that it's consistently becoming a C-level conversation. Yeah, and we're seeing more companies, you know, that are talking about what role they have or what role that they should be playing, you know, as this technology gets implemented. Yeah, so I'll give you an example is that, you know, you take a company like AT&T, is the AT&T, you know, over the last, you know, couple, few years has been, you know, doing a huge amount of digital transformation. And what they've realized is that the skills that they're going to need from all of their employees are you know, vastly going to start to change. You know, there's the questions of, you know, some jobs are going to be automated, you know, but as a piece of that, you know, they're also making a huge push that says, well, it's the value that says, yeah, automating something like a job is, you know, going to be, you know, beneficial to the company, you know, but they also have values around how they support their employees. And so they're in the process of taking, you know, tens of thousands of employees, you know, to retrain them for that next generation of the job. And it's that balance of value and values that I think is something that we're starting to see, you know, pop up, you know, more and more from a company perspective in their planning of what they want to do, as well as the consumer's perspective for what they're expecting out of big companies. Yeah. And I I wanted to talk about personalization, particularly because this is an extremely hot topic right now, specifically in marketing, where you have you know, all pretty much every marketer trying to figure out what their strategy is for personalization. You have the consumer, like is kind of mentioned in your report, where you have 66% of people that um, are concerned about, uh, you know, how folks are um, essentially doing personalization. You know, they're just as concerned about commercial use of their personal data and online identity um, as they are about security threats and hackers. So, you know, I mean, again, this is a huge topic right now and everyone's trying to figure it out. Um, but when you do it right, it's really, really good. And when you do it wrong, it's it's not so good. So I'm I'm curious, um, how what are your thoughts on personalization in the marketplace now? Yeah, I mean, personalization, I mean, it, it's a really good example of you know, what we're seeing as a generalized trend and what we're calling a tech clash is that people like technology. 
I mean, we'll, we'll start with that. Is is the for as much as you know, people worry about you know technology spying on them. They worry about things like you know personalization. You know, the reality. You know, the first one that we had to come to grips with is the people aren't not using tech. You know, we don't see people buying less online. We don't see them dropping their social media accounts and things of that standpoint. You know, but what we are seeing is the expectations for what's coming out of that, you know, is really going higher. And so when you start to see, you know, people's concerns, their concerns aren't necessarily from something like personalization. You know, in fact, the, when you do it, right that says when I log on to a website and it understands what my history and the last things that I've bought and it provides me an easy way to re-up my groceries or find the exact you know shoe or sunglasses that I want is that those types of things are actually very well received by users. The the problem is is that we're not necessarily you know aligning those things with the other expectations that the consumers have it says the well where did you get this information from who are you sharing it with you know and those are that big question that says the what we're doing from a personalization you know is only half the equation is that the personalization side of it has all the benefits but what's often missing is that relationship and that trust with the company and it's that second piece, you know, that we're starting people, you know, to see, you know, the companies that are getting good at this, you know, realize. And so when we start talking about tech clash, you know, we're seeing that it's not a anti-technology movement that we're seeing, you know, come forth. You know, rather, it's that realization that says the, if you're going to take your technology and you're going to, you know, seep into my life, you know, to understand, you know, what my kids' preferences are, you know, or what my, you know, family wants to do on the weekend, you know, those types of things, you know, have crossed into a line that says now we're not just talking about, you know, data pushing back, we're talking about a trust that needs to be established that says, you know, how do we get both out of it that says, you know, a consumer wants that technology and those services too, but they also require that trust along with it, you know, to make sure that they're comfortable, you know, with the exchange because that exchange is, you know, in this particular case, you know, data for services. What about AI? You know, this is something that every single guest that we bring on the show has you know, either thoughts on AI or, uh, or, you know, feels like they should have more thoughts on AI. And it means a million different things. What did you see in the report from an AI perspective? I think AI is actually coming a long ways. And, and one of the interesting things that we've really seen a shift in is the, I think when most people think about artificial intelligence, you know, what they tend to think about is uh, automation. You know, how, how do I take things that used to be, you know, something that people do, you know, and allow machines or an AI chatbot or other things of that standpoint, you know, take its place. But one of the things that we're really seeing a shift for this year is how AI is working with people more. And the interesting thing is, is that, you know, not, not only does it, <clears throat> I'm going to say, allay some of the concerns that people have about, you know, artificial intelligence, you know, taking their jobs, is that it's also incredibly productive because the things that people are good at and the things that artificial intelligence are good at, you know, tend to be different things. You know, so let me give you an example. Um, so Volkswagen is, is in the process of redoing their 1962, you know, VW wagon. So I think everybody can close their eyes and picture a Woodstock-like scenario and imagine what this car looks like. 
to nobody's surprise, it's very important for VW and the designers that you maintain this classic look. I mean, because that's why they're trying to revive it. That's the purpose of the whole you know, effort in the first place. You know, but the reality is, is that well, that's a car from the 60s. I mean, everything from fuel efficiency to modern technology to safety equipment and all the things that you know, absolutely would need to be in a new car suddenly need to be designed into this thing. One of the big issues that they were worried about was something like weight. Yeah, so uh, old time cars, there's lots of steel in the world, prices were low, you know, fuel economy was not something that anybody was worried about. And so you had these giant heavy cars on the road. And so what VW is doing is they're using their designers to actually collaborate with AI within Autodesk's you know, platform. And so what the AI is doing is it's takes, taking part by part things like the rims and the wheel wells to reimagine a huge iterative design of how are all the ways that I could design this to pull weight out. And the neat thing about it is, is that suddenly you end up with this interesting collaboration where you've got designers who are basically saying, all right, here are the pieces that we really need to make sure that this thing still looks like that classic VW bus that we want. But you use AI to say, but I don't really have the capacity or the ability or the interest to go through a million different permutations of what something like a wheel rim would look like in order to maximize strength, you know, but minimize something like weight. And so you've got this AI that's basically doing that thing for them. And so as they go through together, they're essentially able to create something that is better, more fuel efficient while still stylish, you know, than either one of them would have been able to individually create on their own. And it's this type of collaboration, you know, that we're seeing between people and AI in order to get things done that's really started to become more prevalent. With regards to security, you have said that cybersecurity is no longer an individual company effort. It needs to be cooperation with ecosystem partners. This is fascinating to me in the research uh, from the reports that 87% of business and IT execs agree that they want to be truly resilient organizations and to rethink approaches to security. What is the ecosystem play for cybersecurity? Yeah, so, so the ecosystem play is actually really interesting, Yeah, because you know, there, there's a certain amount that says the we're so tied to all of our ecosystem partners is that there's data coming in and out. I mean, just think about something as simple as like a supply chain. If you are building a car, you are, you know, importing, you know, seats from Faricia, you know, you're importing, you know, um, sound systems from Bose, you know, and a million different other companies. And so all of these, both parts and the physicality of these things are coming together, you know, to have a car assembled. But the reality is, is that all of the data associated with all these things are doing it too. And so you end up in this interesting environment where you're suddenly sharing all of your data. But what happens is the when you do that, you realize that your security is no longer just dependent on the data that you have. Rather, it's dependent on the data that all of your partners potentially have about you. And you're only as safe as that weakest link. You know, so an example is, is that a few years back, you know, there was a um, SEC scandal where there was a huge bust on insider trading. And what they found you know, was that they busted a ring 
of insider tradings that had basically been operating for more than five years. And we're talking about, you know, hundreds and hundreds of millions of dollars, you know, in insider trading that was going on, you know, sophisticated to the point, you know, that people were logging on like a, like a shopping cart type thing to grab which data you wanted before it happened, you know, before the press releases, before your earnings reports, before all of the big announcements, you know, in order to be able to grab it and use it to trade. Now, once they figured it out, is that they started to dig in to figure out, well, what was the real breach? And the interesting part about it was that the companies that they were insider trading on is the they weren't the companies that were breached. Rather, they had actually got into the Associated Press, you know, to Reuters and to all of the other companies that, you know, were passing their data on. And so essentially wow. what they were doing is grabbing data from a huge amount of companies, you know, by essentially attacking that weakest link. And, and this is kind of where our, our new reality is, is that, you know, every time we connect to somebody, you know, it becomes a realization that says, if you're connecting to them to grab data, is the, that's a, an into your system. And frankly, you know, the way you're also going to have to look at it is that it says is that you're also an into their system too. And so it's that new way that says you're going to have to start looking at this as an ecosystem, as a partnership, you know, which is something that most companies aren't doing right now. That's fascinating. You know, we've had a, a bunch of guests on here talking about zero trust, what's that, what that means, why it's so important. How does zero trust play into this? You have to have, you have to have some amount of trust, but but it's always trust and verify. <laughs> you know, um, you know, the, the, there's a certain amount of. I think what the zero trust you know philosophy you know goes into, you know, is that you you can't rely on everyone else, you know, when it's your security that's on the line. And, and I think it's why we see folks like uh, Siemens, you know, for example, you know, that are doing audits. They're doing audits, not regulation, you know, not somebody else. You know, they're doing audits, you know, for compliance, you know, both on a security side, you know, as well as on a, you know, a regulation and privacy side. And I think that's going to really start to become, you know, the norm here is that, you know, when we start thinking about standards and we start thinking about things that I think everybody's used to, like service level agreements, you know, because essentially what you're trying to do is you're trying to build that trust, you know, but I think it's also a matter, you know, of the reality of what the marketplace is. Yeah, so here's the reality of the marketplace, which is why I think, you know, everybody has such concerns on this, is that there is no such thing as 100% security. You know, anything can and will be if you have enough effort and or desire to hack can get hacked. And then I think the other side of it is, is that no matter how much money you have to throw at your security, you're never going to be able to secure everything. And so everybody's playing this really interesting game of a risk-based approach to security. So it's a question of what are the things that I find the most vulnerable or the most valuable or the most detrimental if they were destroyed, you know, so that may be credit cards for somebody. It may be, you know, designs to a new airplane. If you're Boeing, the, the problem around that is that what may be most important to you, it may not be most important to what your partners are. And that's a very different way to look at it. And so what you're really talking about is opening up a communication channel with your partners to make sure you understand what their interests, priorities, and vulnerabilities are and match them to yours. Yeah. So I'll give you a, a fun example. There was a, 
a fitness band so that was on the market that was used to track things like um your runs, locations, you know, your fitness level, you know, how much activity that you did, what your heart rate was, you know, going through it. And there was a, an interesting scandal that went on that said that there was a particular army base that had a large number of soldiers that were using this. And for somebody like a fitness company, the idea that you would have a geolocation, you know, and a map running trail for what you would do is the that's a low priority thing that they're not particularly worried about if other people know. And it turned out is that there were folks who were using that information in order to track troop movements. And it's one of those things that you go back and forth and says the, well, if you're only looking at some of these things in isolation, something that can be very small for one company, you know, it can be very big for another, you know, which says the, in this case is the, you know, troop movements, you know, for a U.S. You know, base, you know, that's something that's incredibly classified material. A runner's movement for an individual is something that nobody would think twice about. That's absolutely fascinating. I, yeah, as someone who spent a decade in the army, I can tell you that uh, that would <laughs> that is not great. And as someone who worked in strength strength management reporting for <laughs> for soldiers, uh, that gives me nightmares. Um, that's crazy. What an yeah, that's an interesting thing. I mean, and you figure a their phones are you know already going to be doing that in some form or fashion. Yep. But you can buy a connected device for whatever, 10 bucks and, and have that sort of thing. That's really interesting. Wow. So what are the kind of like, you know, what, what, what can folks do about things like that? Like what, what's the actual, you know, how can, uh, how can organizations, you know, combat those, those sort of things specifically with like IOT, which is borderline impossible to, to have a fully secure, you know, perimeter. Yeah. I mean, I, I think it's a, a lot of it is actually not, I'm going to say it's challenging and it's expensive, you know, but it's honestly, most of it is just starting with the basics, you know, and, and it's that realization that says the, you know, most companies are not sharing information with their partners is the, when they get hacked, um, they're not passing that on to everybody else. You know, when they uh, find trouble that's happening and they have resolutions to it, you know, they're not sharing that information. You know, similarly, they're also not sharing information information around what their priorities are, you know, what are the things that they need to protect, you know, what are the things that they need to do? And so a lot of it, you know, just comes down to the fundamentals that says, well, the same way that you're coordinating internally between your departments around who has access to what and where it goes and when it goes and, you know, where those crux points are that, you know, you should really be checking to what's normal or not, is that all of those same things need to be done, you know, externally. You know, and then I think that once you get to that point that you're actually talking about it, you know, then it becomes that shared responsibility that says, all right, well, whose job is it, you know, to be looking at this data as it's going back and forth? You know, who's coordinating, you know, where the investments are, where those choke points are, you know, who's responding for that information, you know, and who has the ability to actually look across these two different networks in order to figure out if there's something wrong versus only looking at your slide siloed pieces. And so this is really, how am I going to create that security relationship, 
you know, across companies, you know, and across multiple ecosystems. And once you get to that standpoint, you know, then a lot of the same strategies that you're using internally, you know, are likely going to be used externally. It's just a lot more additional cooperation, you know, a lot of additional negotiation. Sometimes, you know, it's a lot of different contracts that says, you know, what standards are you going to be holding your partners to, to make sure that, you know, they're making the investment, you know, even though they might not be the ones particularly at risk. Let's talk robots. You know, this is an exploding field, you know, it's exploding in a good way. Uh, you know, you, the report estimates it's going to be over $241 billion market by, uh, I think, 2022 here, uh, 2023. You know, you have in the report that 48% of consumers surveyed believe the robots are poised to make their lives easier, but 39% are concerned that they'll introduce more problems than they fix. When we talk about robots, I guess, first off, are you talking, is this report referring to robots in a physical sense or a digital sense or both? I mean, it's definitely going to be both, but I think in this particular one, we're, we're focused on that physical sense of a robot. As I think most people are aware that you know, chatbots and AI and all of the things on the back end are happening and will continue to happen. But I think it's kind of a surprise to most people to realize that the, I'll call it the revolution that we had 30 years ago where manufacturing plants essentially, you know, more and more robotics were being placed in them is the, we're in the process now about to have that same thing happen, but have it happened in the real world. And what we've noticed is that almost under the covers is that when you start looking at I'm going to say all of the industries that most people don't have direct access to, you know, those things are happening already. You know, so if I go on to a mining site is the, there are already automated trucks completely driving around carrying dirt back and forth, you know, from all of the, the dig sites, you know, the mining equipment, you know, it's the every dangerous situation you can, you can imagine, you know, is suddenly replacing, you know, robots, you know, with people, you know, in order to make sure that they're protecting their lives is that you look at things like agriculture that says the, everything from picking to planting to monitoring is that more and more of our agricultural systems, you know, are using, you know, large scale robotics. And this is, really happening everywhere. And I think what's surprising to folks is one, that it's happening everywhere. And two, you know, that it's getting to a point that what we're seeing now is the first wave into consumer things. So if you go to um, different Walmarts in the US, for example, is that you're more and more likely to see a robot mopping the floor or a robot slowly moving down the aisles and taking inventory. And that's really becoming, you know, the norm. This idea of, you know, what we're calling robots in the wild is something that we always knew was coming, but it just seemed to have been stalled for so long, you know, that people just kind of shook their head. And I think what we haven't realized is that over the last number of years is that both artificial intelligence, you know, um, the rollout or the beginning of the rollout of 5G is really starting to open those floodgates. And so we're just at the starting line where we're going to start to see and have robots, you know, interacting more and more with us on our daily lives. I mean, is that going to mean something for like the end consumer or is that just more for, for the business? Because like, I, you know, like you've seen some of the robotic cafes and stuff like that. I mean, like, again, maybe there's more of, you know, the like X cafe X or whatever it is, things like that. But it just, 
feels like we're still pretty far ways off from like actually inter- interacting with r- robots in the wild. I mean, we're, we're starting it. And, and I think that's the point is the, you know, we're starting from a business perspective that says the, um, if you go to a hospital, you're more and more likely to have a robotic surgeon, you know, and, and that's something that's, you know, ramping up. Yeah, you're seeing some, I'm going to say, you know, hotels that are doing, you know, using robotics you know, at their front desk, you're seeing some cafes and baristas and bars and other things at that standpoint, you know, using robotics. But I think the point is, is the, you're starting to see those happen. And I think what's really interesting is, is that when we originally started talking about this eight, nine months ago, you know, this was one of those ones that we were basically raising the flag to everyone that says, these things are rapidly starting to happen on the business perspective. And we're, seeing the first people dip their toes into, you know, I think Domino's in Houston, you know, is looking at a automated uh, way to deliver their pizza, you know, but we're starting to see these things creep into our lives and they seem relatively far away, you know, but I think particularly when you start to look at, you know, where we are right now, you know, with COVID as, you know, right now I'm currently, you know, uh, sequestered at home is that the comfort level that people have with robotics, I think is getting more and more because they're seeing the value of them, you know, particularly, you know, in this crisis state. And I also think that while companies are trying to maintain the social distancing, nothing at that point is that all of these projects that they've had in their works and whether those are pilots or in the background, you know, are rapidly being accelerated. And so it's one of those things that says the, yeah, I, I can see why the average person or the average consumer feels like this is something that's way in the future. But the reality is, is that, you know, companies have been doing these things for themselves for a long time. You know, and I think that, you know, essentially the environment that we're in is, is likely going to accelerate it. And that's maybe a few years off, you know, before you see it on a, a everyday basis, you know, but I think it's one of those things that, you know, while we're talking to companies, you're talking about a vastly different type of, you know, how do I maintain these things? You know, what type of skills do I have to build these things? What does customer support mean? You know, if I've got robots breaking down on the side of the road and all of those, you know, complications to it that says it's a big enough change for companies to think about, you know, that the investment and the thought process that they need to have about these, you know, really needs to start now. Yeah, that makes sense. I mean, I, I do think that you know, much in the way that that certain robots and like chatbots and, you know, the digital robots are kind of passing the Turing test. I think that feels like it's almost impossible for, you know, consumerized robots to be able to do that. I don't know, maybe there's some examples where that's that's not the case, but I'd imagine that the frustration level is is a huge part of of that, right? Where you have you just don't want to, you know, make people mad that, hey, we're trying to help, but you know, this isn't um this isn't really ready for prime time. And I think if you look at driverless cars, for example, where you have the, the user experience of getting in a driverless car and it taking you where you need to go is essentially the exact same, right? Like there's not, you know, you have a trust factor and a fear factor and potential hesitancies and all that sort of stuff that's that goes into it. But from a utility standpoint, like, you know, you get there, you know, if robots are de- delivering your packages, right? You don't, you don't interact with the robot, you just have a package sitting there or your food or, or whatever it is. Um, but if there's like that level of social interaction where, you know, 
then then you might have uh, it might show at the seams. Yeah, it's fascinating. I'm, I'm that's this is you know it's a really interesting time and uh, you know for that particularly because I think you know maybe not in a year but in five years it's it's probably going to look totally different. It is, and and I think that's the important thing though is is that you know there's a certain amount of in between that I don't think most people are expecting is the, I think you said it yourself, is the, we're almost expecting that Turing test that says, ah, this robot is going to be my friend and I'm going to have a relationship and they're going to be able to do everything. And I think that's probably not what we're going to see. You know, it's going to be similar to, you know, the Roombas that we seen today is that they are going to be robots. They are going to act and interact with the world, but they're going to do it in a limited fashion. And so, you know, while, you know, we're very far away from the idea that says, you know, I'm going to have a robot in my house that, you know, is my maid and my cook and, you know, does all of the odd handyman jobs is the, yeah, that, that's probably, you know, a, a longer time away, you know, but the idea that suddenly actions and interactions on a very normal basis that says, might they be checking me out at the grocery? Yeah, they might. You know, might they be helping, you know, to mop my four floors? Well, they're kind of doing those things now. Might it might be my barista as the yeah. I think what we're seeing is is that, you know, we're moving down that same path that says we're gonna start with very specific things and those are gonna become more and more common. You know, and the fact of the matter is is the you know, a lot of the things that, you know, are, you know, robotics or robotic like because with the intelligence that they're putting in them, you know, are something that we just don't view that way because, you know, when we close our eyes and we imagine a robot, we imagine, you know, Mr. Data from Star Trek, you know, versus, you know, a washing machine that's actively sensing and changing the cycle to make sure that it cleans and doesn't damage my clothes. You know, the world is is in a crisis um, with COVID. It, it seemingly changes every day, depending on, you know, what is going on. I'm curious, just how do you think about leading through a crisis with your team um, and with all of the, you know, folks that you work with at Accenture? Yeah, so I mean, the, there's a couple of things that, yeah, I, I think the first is the Honestly, it's as simple as recognizing that, that this is really a huge change, you know, and, you know, for us personally, you know, it's, it's obviously the change that says I'm not with my coworkers and the people who work for me, you know, every day anymore, you know, um, it's a realization that things from a life, you know, are happening to everybody. And so you have to be concerned about uh, working hours, uh, health, you know, mental health and all of those types of things, you know, that were you know, not that they weren't important before, but we're going through so many changes right now and there's so much stress and pressure, you know, everybody in the world is the, it's one of those things that's really become, you know, more front and center, you know, while at the same time, the amount of, you know, physical contact you have with people is basically, you know, reduced to, to zero, you know, and that's kind of the, the, the personalized side of things. And so there's a certain amount of, I feel like we're almost recreating new relationships, you know, through technology. We're using our, I'm using Zoom and my video cameras. And, you know, I, I recognize that, you know, even that, you know, is, you know, I'm very blessed, you know, to be able to do it all. And that's almost a, 
a, a, a tribute to how lucky I am to still have my job, you know, how lucky we are to be in a position to have, you know, an internet connection, you know, and the ability to do those things, you know, while so many people are, you know, struggling to, you know, make money, you know, struggling from uh, how do they educate their kids if they don't have an internet connection, you know, how, how much is being lost, you know, just via, you know, the fact that we're all dealing with this crisis. So, yeah, we're, we're all doing the best that we can. But, you know, what's particularly fascinating or weirdly what's happening now, you know, is particularly impact, impacting my team, you know, and our jobs because, you know, it's our jobs to figure out, you know, what's changing with people, what's changing with society and specifically what's changing with technology and how that's going to drive people to a different perspective. Whereas normally these changes we're talking, you know, year over year that says here's three to five years out and what's gradually going to change is that we suddenly come into this environment where we're being asked now, you know, to try to understand, you know, this global crisis that we're going through and how that's going to change the way, you know, the technology is used. And so you know, it, it, it's interesting that, you know, we're trying to balance, I'm going to say both the fact that you need to be, you know, sensitive to what people are going through, you know, uh, and compassionate and understanding to making sure that their health, you know, is a priority to making sure that we do what we can to help overall. But from the same standpoint is that we're, we're also really on those front lines of rethinking what is this world going to look like and how do people need to act and react differently and how do businesses need to start to take into account technology and how it's going to be used, you know, at this point as a nice to have, but how do I use it to save my business? You know, how do I use it so that people can still get work done? You know, how do I use it so that, you know, companies like, you know, GE can redo their plants in order to build ventilators? And these are the types of things that we're, we're working through right now. And, and I think it's in, you know, it's important, you know, for us to realize that, you know, that ideas and that thought leadership of, you know, trying to guide people, you know, first is squarely on our plate and something that we believe, you know, is our privilege and right, you know, and responsibility, you know, to try to help people, you know, through this as best we can. Okay, let's get into our lightning round. These questions are fast and easy, just like the Salesforce Customer 360 platform, the number one cloud platform for digital transformation of every experience. Go to salesforce.com slash platform to learn more. Lightning round questions. Michael, are you ready? I'm ready. Number one, what app on your phone is the most fun? <laughs> right now, Zoom. What is your hidden talent or passion? I make beer. Oh, yeah. Ed, f- favorite, uh, favorite beer? Um, I, I'm currently making a uh, grapefruit IPA. Wow. That's fun. How'd you get into, how did you get into beer making? I kind of just fell into it. I've got a cousin who has been doing it for years and his beer taste is so bad that I feel like I've tasted so many bad beers that I was convinced that I could do it better myself. And so we made one uh, with a few friends of mine um, after a party and we've never looked back since. What is your favorite thing to cook or eat? Ribs, a hundred percent ribs. There's, a, a soft spot in my heart for anything barbecued, but uh, I, I don't think I could live a life without ribs. What book or podcast are you binging these days? 
so weirdly enough i, I am I, i'm rereading moby dick and it's been super fun and fascinating just because i i feel like when i first read it it was one of those things that somebody had uh, almost at gunpoint point me towards and now i'm realizing that you know this was actually could have been you know one of the more fun activities as i was going through school you know and hell now i'm doing it voluntarily yeah there's so many like books like that where you go back and and read and you're like ah i probably should have read this in my 20s when it actually is relevant to me and not when i was like 13 when it's like i have zero life experience cuz when you're 13 you are like I want to go, you know, screw around with my friends. Uh-huh, exactly. What is your best advice for a first-time CIO or CTO? Oh, that's a good question. I think my my best advice for a first-time CIO and CTO is that your goal is to implement change is that I think what's, you know, and this is not just, you know, from a current environment around COVID, you know, but rather a general environment that we've seen over the last number of years is that the, the largest mistake that we see, you know, happen in the marketplace is that everybody wants so bad to have that perfect answer, that perfect solution that's going to make everything better is that they freeze. And the more that you're standing still, the more that everybody's, you know, moving away without you. Yeah, and so there's a certain mentality, you know, that I've seen that works best in the CIO and the CTO department, you know, which is really the I don't have to be perfect, I just have to be better than the guy next to me. And that mentality, you know, really pushes you to constantly move and constantly change, you know, knowing that the beauty of IT right now is the resiliency and the agility, you know, and the flexibility to be able to change as you go. And so, you know, the more that you can keep pushing to move forward, I think the better off you will be. What question do you never get asked that you wish you were asked more often? Data veracity. So the, I think my, my big underlying kick that I wish people would talk more about, you know, is you know, how we determine uh, truth and data. And I, I don't mean that just from a news and media perspective, you know, but, you know, there's this interesting, you know, piece that says that uh, people lie. You know, I read an article, like the last stat that I said, you know, showed that, you know, something on the order of a, they did a survey for patients. So now you're talking about people who are at a doctor, you know, who is, you know, by law, you're going to keep all of your information confidential. And then you have your health at stake, you know, to tell them the truth about what's going on, you know, and I think that, you know, more than a quarter of them, you know, admitted to, you know, telling their doctors a lie. And it's this really interesting piece that we have that says that we're in this process of building this world fundamentally based off of data, you know, understanding people, understanding what's going on and using data to drive most of our decisions. You know, but I think that the amount of time and effort that people are making to make sure that their data is accurate, that their data is true and their data is, you know, verified as much as we can, you know, is almost criminally under underrepresented. That's it. That's all we got. Michael, thanks so much for coming on the show. We really appreciate it. Any uh, final thoughts? Anything to plug? No. I mean, if, if you guys are interested in technology, you want to understand where the world's going, um, I, I suggest, you know, you take, go to www.accenture.com slash technology vision, you know, and if you have thoughts or comments, you know, definitely reach out to me. Awesome. Thanks so much. And we'll talk soon. 
IT Visionaries is created by the team at mission.org and brought to you by the Salesforce Customer 360 platform, the number one cloud platform for digital transformation of every experience. Build connected experience, empower every employee, and deliver continuous innovation with the customer at the center of everything you do. Learn more at salesforce.com platform.